cliffcentral.com. So Professor Gilbert Khadiagala is the Jan Smuts Professor of International Relations and the Director of the Center for the Study of the United States, the ACSUS, at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. And he has previously taught comparative politics, African politics, international relations in Kenya, Canada, and the United States. He also holds a doctorate in international studies from the Paul H. Nietzsche School of Advanced International Studies. He also has the John Hopkins, that's at John Hopkins University. He's also the recent editor of War and Peace in Africa's Great Lakes region and the author of the Regional Cooperation on Democratization and Conflict Management in Africa which was published by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace 2018. It's a great pleasure to welcome someone so esteemed to the show. And, uh, Professor, I hope you're well. I'm well, thank you, Gareth. Thank you, Gareth. I'm, I'm very pleased to talk to you, and I, I think the, the scope of our conversation has to be limited, or you and I could end up talking for hours and hours. Um, <laughs> when it comes to African politics, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on what is going on in the Great Lakes region. But for today, I think it's probably wise that we stick to a brief about the United States, which still occupies an enormous space in international politics. It's still the single most powerful and, and most influential geopolitical player. Uh, certainly, American news seems to filter in, American culture seems to filter in more than almost any other into our own environment. But there are obviously reasons that America is important to, to look at and to pay attention to from the point of view of Africa. So, Prof, maybe we should just start off with where our relations are with the United States at the moment. It's been a little fractious, to say the least. Um, we haven't exactly had the warmest relationship with the United States as things have sort of got on through uh, probably Nelson Mandela and Thabo Mbeki. They were probably quite good. But certainly under the international relations minister, Maiti Nguana Mashabane, it seems that they cooled off quite a lot. There were some... Uh, some statements made from our side and some from the U.S.'s side. Obviously, Donald Trump coming in had an effect on that, too. How do you evaluate our relationship with the U.S. at the moment? I think the most important element of the relationship is uh, uh, one broadly of continuity. Uh, even though there have been problems here and there, uh, the relationship remains pretty much on an even keel. I think the only problem was uh, Donald Trump, who you've already mentioned. I think he didn't take a very positive view of Africa and uh, for that South Africa for that matter. And therefore, it hit a big snug over a four-year period. U.S.-Africa relations uh, didn't go very well. But I think we are seeing a big change during the Biden administration. I think the priority of the administration has been to signal that uh, Africa is important and you have major players in Africa like South Africa that need to be taken seriously if the U.S. has to play a leadership role over the continent. So I think one of the things that uh, the Biden administration did last year was to reach out to African leaders such as uh, Cyril Ramaphosa, such as Jomo, Uhuru Kenyatta in Kenya and, and various other leaders. I think it was a determination to say the, tra the Trump days are over. We can get Africa back to the global map. The U.S. can start talking to, to the African countries, to specific African countries. We can also begin to engage Africans 
at uh, a global level through multilateral institutions. So one of the things that the Trump, the, the, the Trump administration did was to begin to withdraw from key multilateral institutions, such as the WHO and the Paris Agreement, uh, uh, which was bad for Africa because Africa benefits from these very institutions. So I think now we are seeing a resurgence of uh, U.S. leadership on these issues, and Africa is going to benefit uh, from that kind of condition. Now, Prof, I mean, a lot of your language, and I'm listening carefully to what you say here, is around signals, engagement, multinational platforms. This is all good and well in terms of talk. But in reality, how much influence does America still exert on the African continent? It's undoubtedly the case that in many parts of Africa, China has superseded America as the power to talk to, the power to do business with. Um, We know that there are other countries vying for influence on the continent, too. Is America still the most important partner for us to engage with? I think it is still the most important partner to engage with because uh, the United States has been here longer than China. Uh, The history is deeper. Uh, The relationships are much more warmer uh, than other other players. Even though I think you are correct, China came in uh, over the last uh, 30 or so years, has been very aggressive economically has engaged Africa, it has done good things. But I think the bigger issue is that uh, U.S.-Africa relations remain very historically deep, uh, particularly Mm -hmm. on the cultural dimension. And culture here is important uh, because uh, I think uh, that I think that that the Chinese, and I I think I'm just putting it uh, politely here, uh, because of the very density of interactions, the movies, the music, and all this, uh, what some other people call, in fact, cultural imperialism is much, much deeper from the U.S. side of things. Uh, and that is important because it, it brings out what the people call soft power. I mean, the, the softness of U.S. engagement with Africa makes it a bigger player within the larger African context than other players like Russia or China who are emerging as equally important competitors. So, Prof, I mean, again, I'm going to have to push you on this just a little more because it's fine to talk and to signal that you're interested in Africa, but the Biden administration has been in situ now for over a year and their own home record is absolutely abysmal. They haven't managed to pass very much legislation. Certainly the public approval ratings for Joe Biden in his first year in office have fallen to below what they were for Donald Trump. It seems that the House is likely to be taken over by the Republicans at the end of this year when they go to elections again. And and the, the messaging may be good internationally, but locally it's an absolute disaster. And Joe Biden himself seems to be a doddering, somewhat senile old man who's completely not at the controls. When you look at things like Afghanistan, when you look at the way that this Russia-Ukraine situation is being handled, when you look at the way that he's handled domestic affairs like inflation, it seems, and COVID for that matter, because even on COVID, he's raising the white flag today saying, fine, businesses that he was trying to mandate over 100 employees uh, in, in companies would have to vaccinate and wear masks and do this and do that. He's, he's re, uh, recalibrating that very quickly today in defeat, not in victory. So Joe Biden may be sending out signals to Africa that you've discussed already, but what is he actually doing? 
What's he doing for us? Because we can measure, like George W. Bush, for example, sent a lot more money to this country than probably any other president in my lifetime. And that was mostly to fight HIV AIDS. It was to do some social welfare work. It was to establish institutions here that would protect democracy and free speech and the rule of law. But I don't think since then we've had anything near that amount of investment. No, I think you make a good, a good point, which is that uh, you cannot be a, a strong leader in foreign policy if you are not a strong leader domestically, if you are not mm-hmm. acknowledged, if you are not accepted. And therefore, Biden has been facing the problem that during the first year, he's had a lot of opposition uh, from uh, uh, his opponents, particularly the Republicans in both in, in, in the Senate. So the very weakness uh, that he's facing now really curtails his ability to provide the kind of leadership you are talking about. But the president, uh, like the, the president, sorry to interrupt you, the president does yeah. have plenary power in terms of foreign affairs and, and, and international policy. He can declare wars, he can make foreign policy statements, and he can almost by, you know, by diktat, he can, he can kind of make foreign policy to his own liking. And certainly Joe Biden has done nothing respectful or interesting in, in, in African terms that I can think of. Am I missing anything? No, but Garrett, he's been only in power for one year. Uh, and, and his plate has been sufficiently full, not just with domestic priorities, particularly the COVID crisis, but he's also got other foreign policy engagements uh, that are more important. Uh, so, in other, words, so in other words, we're not a priority then? Uh, you know, we are priority against the backdrop of other competing priorities. Uh, so my point to you is that within a year, I think it will be very harsh to judge the Biden administration as having done nothing concrete in terms of the big economic policies that you've just mentioned from previous administrations, even the Obama administration. But what the point I'm making is that a new administration comes in. You have to put the building blocks in place. Uh, you have to appoint your ambassadors to these countries. Uh, you have, in fact, to, again, to repeat the word, you have to signal that you want to engage these countries. In the first year, once you put those building blocks in place, then you begin to come up with a strategy for the continent. They haven't had a strategy for Africa. Uh, the Biden administration doesn't have a strategy for Africa yet. It probably will be unveiled this year. But what I'm saying is there have been baby steps towards an improvement of the relationships between the U.S. and Africa as a whole. But it's too premature to come up with very big and bold uh, programs that I think most African countries are expecting. So, so Prof, I mean, again, not to be rude, but you're optimistic about nothing. (laughs) No, no, my optimism stems from the fact that the Biden administration, unlike the uh, the Trump administration, had deeper knowledge of Africa. Uh, Biden served in uh, the Obama administration for, for eight years. He has mm-hmm. sufficient knowledge of Africa. He knows the African players. He can appoint a team to work on Africa that has the knowledge, the expertise about the continent, 
than Probably. any other administration. Do you, do you really think so? I mean, have you watched Joe Biden in a press conference? And there have been very few. I don't think he knows what Rumi is very much of the time. I mean, Trump, of course, was a blistering, rude, vulgar, uncouth man in, in, in his yeah. best moments. But Joe Biden seems like he's vacant, completely vacant. He looks like he should be in a home eating porridge. <laughs> but these are two questions you are conflating. I mean, no, no, but, uh, no, but if you say that he learned anything under Obama, I mean, Barack Obama himself said, if, if you want to have anything screwed up, give it to Joe Biden while he was his vice president. You know, that's the uh, words of the former president, yeah. not me. Yeah. No, no, what I'm saying, that's correct. But, but the point I want to put across is that uh, he is a president. He's in a position to appoint an African team. Is an opposition to appoint a foreign policy team that is actually going to take care of the matters you are precisely uh, speaking about. I, I don't think a president leads on everything. I think he does lead on some strategic issues. Uh, but I think in this case, uh, compounded, as you are saying, by age, he's not going to be as, uh, as an activist presidency when it comes to foreign policy around Africa. Uh, such uh, uh, than other presidents uh, before well, him. So I think what we can expect is at least some level of uh, engagement uh, by the president, but ultimately, most of the decisions are going to be taken elsewhere by the actors that he's appointed. So, so in other words, I'm going to downgrade your optimism now to just hopeful, hopeful thinking. Uh, more than anything else, because it, it did when we started talking about this, you, you, you certainly sounded like you were very optimistic about the Biden administration and you've curtailed your response now to be much more of one of hope that you hope that he will appoint the right people and have some interest in us. I mean, I'm not, yeah. I'm not concerned because I do agree with you. And I, I mean, you're the more learned one among us when it comes to this long relationship between Africa and, and the United States. But Africa isn't really a priority for the United States. It hasn't really ever been. It's almost like we're their charity case. And when they do get involved with us, and thank God they do, they've done amazing work here. And certainly the American relationship with South Africa is probably more important from a national security point of view than our relationship with almost any other country. How do you feel that the Biden administration feels, uh, how, do you, how do you think they, they look at South Africa and Southern Africa from a geopolitical ally point of view? You know, you mentioned earlier that Donald Trump kind of ruined the relationship in some ways. But we haven't exactly made friends with the right people. And by right people, I said in inverted commas, from the American mm -hmm. point of view. You know, we're close to uh, Iran, for example. We're close to Palestine in this country. We're close to many other countries that are not friends and allies of the United States. So the U.S.-South Africa relationship has been a love-hate relationship. There are, other, there are so many areas that uh, the U.S. agrees with South Africa. Or South Africa, in fact, would like to engage the U.S. on so many broad areas. But there are other areas where they differ, and that's for historical reasons. So I don't see that changing very much. Uh, the Biden administration has reached out to Ramaphosa. I think they believe he's uh, an important player on the African continent. They also believe he's an important player in Southern Africa as a region. And Southern Africa also remains a strategic region to the U.S. because you have South Africa with all the sea lands and so on. This is an important player with all the minerals in this part of the world. So the U.S. takes that component seriously. But we are not going to 
change South Africa's position on Palestine, uh, on Cuba, or uh, other, other mm. big issues where the South Africans don't want to be treated like small children. So these relationships have to be managed very carefully. Uh, and I think that's why uh, I, I talked about continuity. You are going to see uh, the U.S. agreeing with South Africa on the U.N. Security Council or wherever on global issues. But on the other hand, you are going to see a lot of conflict, even on issues such as trade. You know, there's good there's a lot of trade going on between South Africa and the U.S., but there are conflicts about the nature of that trade. Uh, and I think this is a normal, normal condition in these kinds of relationships. You are not really friends, but neither are you actually really enemies. And that's really the bigger compromise around foreign policy priorities. Well, we, we certainly aren't consistent because when China tells us not to be friends with the Dalai Lama or with Taiwan or with Tibet, we do exactly as we're told. So we are, we are small children in respect of some powers. In others, we, we are rock solid. So I don't know how we figure that. It's a, it's a big challenge because it depends on um, what South Africa's foreign policy, I mean, what if, if preventing the Dalai Lama from coming here uh, put it in a very good stead in Beijing, I think it, it was looking at the costs and benefits of those kinds of decisions. Mm. And, and uh, the cost-benefit analysis always driver of these kinds of uh, uh, issues in, in foreign policy. Real I don't politics. know whether... Yeah, real politics and so on. So I, uh, but on the other hand, you also have to compromise with other actors. Uh, I think the organization around BRICS, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, where South Africa was playing an important role and where the U.S. was very worried about South Africa's engagement with the negative powers such as Russia and China, that organization is not as strong as it used to be under Zuma. Uh, mm. And I think uh, what uh, the President Ramaphosa has done here is to downplay that kind of engagement with those, yeah. with those players. Uh, and I don't know for tactical reasons, for real politic reasons, but as I said, that's the give and take in, in foreign policy or in uh, foreign engagements with a lot of powers where you need, in fact, to make some trade-offs as you go along. Prof, what, what is the cost-benefit analysis for us to stay friends with someone like Palestine, for example, or Cuba, for that matter? Well, as, opposed Palestine, to US, as opposed to what the U.S. might do for us or what Israel might do for us? Uh, you know, Palestine has also, uh, I mean, South Africa has a radical component to its foreign policy. It's going to support uh, countries that supported or powers that supported it during the liberation struggle. So that's really an ANC line rather than a purely government line. It's uh, ideological. Yeah, it's ideological. Yeah. And I mean, there's no way you're going to, uh, to tell the ANC not to support Palestine because they said these were our allies. Uh, on the same, in the same vein, Cuba. Uh, Cuba is a, uh, an important player within the ANC's foreign policy dimension uh, because of the historical linkages. But also sure. on Cuba, in Cuba, I don't think the ANC or South Africa wants to 
to kowtow on the U.S. when it comes to issues of Cuba. Uh, And and I don't think that's going to change any time soon, not dramatically. I'm looking at it from the U.S.'s point of view, and they must think we're terrible hypocrites because on certain occasions it's ideological and others it's purely real politic. And uh, the, only, the only deciding factor between those is some gray and unclear area between ANC policy, government policy, and what the country needs in a hurry. Uh, but on the other hand, I think uh, you could say the same about the U.S. They're hypocrites when it comes to some issues globally. <laughs> I think we behave almost, I mean, countries behave almost uh, the same. Uh, when do your foreign interests, when do your national interests trump your, your ideological commitments? Or when do your ideological commitments, in fact, trump real national interests? Is, so this, is the this country, it's a, it's a very difficult, uh, you have to make those trade-offs, you, make, you, have, you have to choose, and sometimes you become a liar, sometimes you become a hypocrite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it depends then on how you are going to pay for your lies, or how you are so going to pay for your hypocrisy. Who is so going prof- to, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm curious then, if we, you brought up the issue of the, the Paris Climate Agreement, what benefits does that Paris climate ag- agreement bring to Africa? Um, certainly it, it imposes all kinds of restrictions on countries all over the world in terms of fossil fuel emissions and that kind of thing. I mean, it's a big talk shop. Very few countries have implemented China, Russia, uh, China, India and Russia have completely rejected it. And, and in, in countries like ours, it's important for us to develop industrially. We know we're hugely reliant on things like coal power. If we were to curtail that, I mean, ESCOM's already a disaster. Can you imagine how much more of a disaster it would be if we were suddenly to abandon the few projects that we do have running with coal? Why would the Paris Climate Agreement be a good thing for Biden to throw back into the hat? No, the Paris Agreement is a, a whole host of uh, commitments around a global uh, engagement on, in the long run, the reduction of uh, uh, carbon emissions in. Uh, and and this this impacts. I think the science is very clear uh, that global global climate change is is a is a threat to all countries. And some countries, for for instance, in Africa, the island nations are going to be affected disproportionately if we don't do as much as we should be doing. And therefore, I think the point is that uh, Africa benefits from a, a global commitment towards climate change because we don't have as serious mitigation mechanisms as the other developed countries. I think if we have big floods here or if we have uh, drastic changes in climate, our mechanisms for responding are not as robust. Uh, therefore, I agree that, I mean, there is skepticism about what are the actual benefits of, of these agreements to poor countries? But I, I think we should buy the argument, the scientific argument, that if nothing is done in the interim, these countries will, will be disproportionately affected badly by, by climate change. So I, yeah. I, I buy into your economic argument uh, that, in fact, coal needs to be the driver of South Africa's economy because it's one of the only game in town. But yeah. <laughs> even under those circumstances, uh, there are trade-offs. South Africa can, in fact, begin to go. 
you, you know, you, you mentioned trade-offs in, in, in foreign policy, but this is a trade-off that South Africa can't afford to make. We don't want other countries imposing on us certain restrictions on our coal economy, which we absolutely cannot afford at the moment. We're already pressed. We have huge uh, challenges from a power point of view. And poor countries all over the world seem to me to not be the beneficiaries of the Paris Accord, but to be yeah. the victims of it. Poor countries like ours, I suppose you could call us a poor country by comparison to the United States. With other countries, maybe we're not so poor. But we are hugely dependent on industrialization, on growth, on manufacture, on, on, on heavy industry, on mineral resources that you brought up earlier. All of this requires power. Without coal-fired power, we don't have a hope in hell as an economy. And for us, the priority must be to employ people, to feed people, to give people jobs to create a sustainable economy, which we don't have at the moment. Climate change is much further down the line for us. <laughs> the, the argument is there are alternatives to coal. Uh, and we haven't done enough, especially in we South Africa. Huh? We can't afford to, Prof. We don't have that kind uh, of luxury. It's fine for Canada and you know, yeah, Denmark. It's not good for us. Uh, we can't afford it because I think we are drunk on coal. Uh, but if we if we wean ourselves from that drunkenness, that dependence on coal, then we begin to look at other alternatives. Mm. And there's a the, the green economy movement is very strong. I, they, I, they bring out you. all those. I'm with you. I'm with you in green economy. I'm with you on climate change. But Prof, it yeah. sounds that sounds to me like an ideological argument from your point of view. Doesn't sound very scientific because you know what the realities are here. Yeah, I mean, the reality is that you, you need economic growth. Uh, economic growth is powered largely, for now, by coal. Uh, but I, I think the argument, even countries like China have been making the same argument. Uh, we are not particularly interested in the Paris uh, Climate Accord because they are going to restrict our ability in to, grow, to grow our economies. Uh, but I think then the scientists come up and say, we can look at alternatives. We can look at how, in fact, we, we, we deal with, uh, we, we, we come up with greener energies. And these are not ideological arguments. These are pleas to policymakers, in fact, to make this kind of paradigmatic shifts in their thinking. Because I, I think that's what uh, you are demonstrating, that there's no way we are going to grow as an economy. <laughs> if our economy is not powered by coal. And I'm just saying that there are scientists who come up and say, no, there are other ways that we we can, in fact, achieve, achieve the same objectives. Maybe slow, uh, maybe gradually, uh, but I think we can begin to experiment uh, sure. around, yeah, alternatives, but, yes. But there are a lot of maybes there, and, and frankly, our government can't even seem to get the coal part right, which... <laughs> Is, is frightening. So if we're going to do more complicated things, and nuclear, I would have said, would have been the answer. But of course, there are ideological arguments against that, because nuclear, of course, would power just as much as coal, if not better, more efficiently, perhaps more environmentally uh, sensitively. But no one wants to talk nuclear anymore. So, Prof, um, AGOA, the African Growth and Opportunity Act, yeah. this is an important part of U.S. policy and U.S. interaction with Africa. Um, how is that going? Are they going to extend it? What are the other... Uh, potential uh, deals that we could be striking with the United States at the moment. You did mention trade between uh, us and them and Africa more generally and the U.S. 
No, Igor is uh, uh, still a key uh, component of U.S. trade relationships. Uh, the only problem now is that uh, it's expiring in 2025 and it has to begin negotiations uh, between Africa and the U.S. on renewal. And those negotiations uh, are going to be very difficult uh, because you're going to have a Congress probably a Republican Congress uh, in the next uh, few years or so uh, that may not be as open as other previous administrations well, on, on, a, on a Goa. So, I mean... It was a, it was a Republican president who instituted a Goa. Yeah, it was a Republican president, but I'm just saying things are and, changing. And, and, this, and, and this Congress at the moment is Democratic in the House and in the Senate by a small minority, but it's still... Uh, you know, a small majority, rather. It's it's still democratic. There's a president in the White House who's a Democrat. What is holding them back? I mean, for God's sake, you did say give them a year, but this is the second year. If they're going to do it, this better be the year that they get it done. The negotiations are to begin at least next year, uh, and we don't really know the configuration of Congress uh, next year. Uh, we don't know how strong the Biden administration will be in pushing for an IGOA agenda. But I, I, I think the optimistic scenario is that, in fact, IGOA would be renewed uh, down the road. The question is, the devil is in the details. Uh, there are a lot of issues that uh, some congressmen men and women are not actually very happy with. Uh, and therefore, there have to be very protracted negotiations between the U.S. and African countries on whether, in fact, you're going to, to broaden their goal or whether it's going to remain pretty much what it is. I think the movement in Africa is to get an goal that is more beneficial, that is more broad-based rather than a very narrowly based goal as it is now. The question then to, to, to put to the table is who is going to have the stomach to push for a, a broadened goal within the U.S.? particularly if uh, Congress or some congressmen or women are not as favorable. So I think we just have to see. I, I, uh, again, I want to go back to my optimism here uh, because it's been one of the biggest platforms of how the U.S. engages with Africa. I don't think a goal is going to go away. But it's not just a goal. There are other uh, engagements at other economic and uh, uh, in, uh, I mean, in, in terms of investments, there are other you know, platforms that are still critical to signaling that Africa is important to the U.S. Well, um, I, I think that there are probably uh, a lot of these things that go unnoticed. I mean, the, the, the tremendous impact that the U.S. has had on helping us fight HIV AIDS is something which very seldom gets taken stock of. And we really do owe a debt of gratitude, particularly to them for providing not only the, the, the care, but also some of the pharmaceuticals, which obviously during COVID has been helpful too, in terms of, of helping people there with uh, you know, the deals that were struck between Cyril Ramaphosa, the WHO, uh, Joe Biden before that, even Donald Trump. But there were certain things that were done that have helped uh, South Africa in particular along the way. And, and we do rely very heavily on this good relationship with the United States, certainly more than they do on us. Do you think there's any chance of a Joe Biden visit anytime soon? 
Uh, I think this year looks uh, uh, unrealistic because the the foreign policy agenda is so crowded now with Ukraine, with other other big priorities. I don't see that. Uh, I don't think that he's going to uh, visit Africa this year. But I think the big item on the agenda this year is uh, an Africa-U.S. summit, uh, mm-hmm. which was promised last year. Uh, by Secretary of State Anthony Blinken when he visited three countries. He said, uh, we'll have a big summit next year, which is this year. So I suspect that uh, if they had a big summit in Washington, uh, then you had all these 55 or so countries going there. It it makes up for his not coming to Africa. Uh, but we may see Kamala Harris, the vice president, probably making uh, a maiden speech to Africa uh, this year. Oh, I'm sure everybody's excited as hell about that because they're excited as hell about Kamala Harris all over the United States too. Um, so, so Prof, in in conclusion here, we've got quite a lot of, of moving things on the chessboard. Um, we, we have a, a United States which undoubtedly is starting to decline in terms of its overall power in the world. It's no longer the hegemon that it was post-Cold War. Um, we have Obviously, the, the very fractious nature of domestic politics, which is, is going to color foreign affairs for the United States. We do have, you know, these, these bright green shoots of AGOA. We have hopefully uh, a permanent appointment of ambassador soon. Um, but the, the U.S. mission here in South Africa is doing tremendously good work. And uh, I think that this relationship is probably one of the most valuable ones that we have in the world. Uh, what do you think America's priorities are, though, with respect to Africa? What do you think they want when they're involved here? What do we give them in return? I think what I expect first is uh, an Africa that can govern itself, uh, an Africa that is comfortable itself, an Africa that is not at war, uh, an Africa that is a global player, uh, an Africa that does not... Uh, resort to big brothers in the global scene. I, I, I think the, the issue around Africa's dependence on a few players globally is, is a problem. Uh, I think what the U.S. wants is an Africa that in fact can build trade relationships within itself, uh, can help each other to restore uh, uh, all these uh, insecurities to deal with issues such as terrorism in the Horn of Africa, the Sahel. Uh, right. And these are really important expectations because Africa needs to, to take its place in the world. And it can't do that if it can't resolve its own problems. Uh, and, I, and I think that's not an unrealistic expectation. Even the Chinese, I think, wonder of Africans who are com- confident and comfortable about their roles in, in, in the world. Well, I, I certainly hope that we can come to the table the way that we used to under Tabo Mbeki when we were really had a, we had a strong finance, uh, strong in, independence, sorry, a strong international relations policy. And we had mm-hmm. a, a very cogent idea of how we wanted to be seen in the world, the non-allied uh, allied movement and that kind of thing. We We had, also, the enormous um, moral high ground of having been a country that had not got to a civil war situation with the fall of apartheid, the, the rise of democracy here. We had, you know, leaders like Tutu and Mandela who helped us to establish ourselves in the world at a very high level. Um, yeah. Do you think that, do you think that we still punch at that, 
kind of weight or do you think that that has uh, has descended slightly down the scale I think there has been a, a decimation of uh, of our role of South Africa because of uh, again uh, uh, the nature of domestic politics I think what we saw under Zuma was essentially uh, the start of uh, the destruction of inst- key institutions. And these are institutions that are important because they not only showcase South Africa, they make South Africa work, but they also make South Africa a role model across Africa. And I think as we've had these institutions being weakened, uh, that destroys South Africa's ability to provide a kind of leadership I think that the U.S. wants. So down the road, the expectation is that there has to be a focus on strengthening or returning to the immediate post-apartheid uh, period where you had really robust institutions that were able to negotiate all these differences domestically, but also to provide leadership within Africa and at the UN or at other multilateral levels. South Africa cannot be begging uh, for acceptance globally because it's a strong power within itself. It's a fairly strong economy and South Africa has a moral leadership in Africa and is accepted. But we need that to be translated into more concrete uh, leadership rather than what we saw, I think, under I think the, the Zuma period. Under, and even now, I think we see some weaknesses mm. in South Africa's ability to reassert itself. I think that's a very fair assessment. Um, Prof, you obviously read many, many papers that go between South Africa and the United States. You're, you're, you're analyzing p- possible legislation, yellow papers and white papers that are being tabled before our parliament and, and theirs, their Congress. Um, what, what is, what is your overall sense of ma- major multilateral institutions like the UN, which you mentioned just a minute ago? The, these organizations are also at an all time low as far as I can figure it. Uh, you know, the UN used to be this, certainly when it was established, it was this organization that meant to try to keep the world from conflict, to, to create a place where people could have conversations and discuss things on an international scale, hopefully where competing interests could come and have a fair hearing. But the UN has probably never mattered so little as in the last couple of years. And with the exception of the WHO, most of their arms and their various departments seem to me to be just swollen bureaucracies and there's very little credibility left there. No one really listens to the general assembly anymore. I don't know when last a speech was made, you know, in the old days of Mugabe or Castro or, um, or, or, or people like uh, Gaddafi, you used to have people watching it and they paid attention. And that was sometimes the only bit of action that Africa got on the international stage was in that general assembly. But now it seems nobody's even listening. No, I think, you know, there are international crises that uh, require the UN. The UN only comes in when there are big things that it has to deal with. I think when we have relative relative peace, and I would define the last 10 or 20 years globally as one, uh, one of relative peace, except for, you know, conflicts like Yemen and so on, uh, mm. Syria, and now we are going into a bigger conflict like Ukraine. We haven't had a big war. Uh, globally. And when we haven't had a big war, the UN looks like it's very subdued. It's mm. not doing as much. Uh, but I think when we hit a big one, then you need the coalescence of 
the international community. You need the UN to step in. And sometimes it's also a question of leadership. Maybe you have some secretary generals at the UN who are much more, you know, uh, very well known globally, uh, or they're activists. Uh, but uh, we have people now, Mr. Gutierrez, very, 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 very low key. So I, I don't really think the UN's role has changed remarkably. I can accept the criticism, and these are criticisms made all, every day about the bureaucracy, uh, about uh, multiple mandates and so on. But mm-hmm. I think the UN is still required uh, because when, when it will be required, uh, we'll know it. <laughs> but, right. but more often than not, we don't really need it uh, because it's doing small, small things that are equally important uh, but uh, we don't really hear about it, or we don't think they're important. There are other smaller institutions with, within the UN uh, that are actually playing uh, interesting roles, even on issues like communications, you know, radio, all these multiple mm-hmm. institutions that the UN has created. So the New York part of the UN is not as important. <laughs> it, only comes, it only comes up when there is a, a, a big crisis that the world needs to deal with. Well, I'm very glad that we have you uh, observing and, and analyzing this for us because uh, there's a lot to take in. And we, we do need uh, organizations like the one that you head and, and where you are very involved in terms of, of studying this relationship between the United States and South Africa. So, Prof, it's always good to see you. And thank you very much for making your time available to us this morning. We only covered a, a tenth of the things I wanted to talk to you about, but I'm sure we'll have other reasons to talk in the future. Yeah, thank you very much, guys. And I think we'll have more time to talk about other things. Thank you so much. Professor Gilbert Khadiagala, it's very good to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.